You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Wednesday, October 17th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and Black Student Union at Harvard Kennedy School hosted a discussion with Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney about the state of voting rights, including the restoration of voting rights for felons. Khalil Gibran Muhammad, professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, moderated. So uh, a few um, introductory uh, remarks about uh, the mayor. He's the 80th mayor uh, of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, He has been in office since, it looks like, uh, New Year's Eve of 2016. He's a Virginia native, a graduate of James Madison University, and uh, has had a pretty heady uh, political rise uh, over a fairly short period of time. I joked earlier that uh, as quarterback, he's used to seeing above the fray uh, and uh, making smart decisions. Uh, but he started his career as a fellow working in Governor Mark Warner's office um, and uh, came uh, into the fullness of his uh, appointed career as the first African-American Secretary of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, and uh, you know he's been kind of doing some pretty incredible things ever since. He's going to talk a little bit more about that. Let me just mention a couple of other highlights so you have a sense of uh, how others are seeing his accomplishments. Uh, So uh, because I'm a historian, I'm almost curious of the before. But what we know now is the after is this, that Richmond has been voted by Time Magazine to be the number two place that millennials are moving to. Uh, And so that's uh, credited, I suppose, to Mayor Stoney's. I'll take the credit. (laughs) (laughs) Hard work. Uh, It is a top 25 best place to live, according to U.S. News and World Report, and uh, something that he most certainly can be proud of if the Richmond Times-Dispatch has recognized him in 2016 as the person of the year. Uh, So let's talk about um, your background more generally and how you uh, came to be such an important political figure uh, in Virginia writ large, and uh, most recently in Richmond. Well, first I want to say thank you for everyone for, for coming out and having this discussion. And Professor, thank you for an opportunity to talk about uh, not only Virginia, but the city of Richmond, and uh, discuss such a very important topic. Uh, I, I, I come to politics and government, I guess, you know, uh, as a person I think that, you know, I, we, I got involved in politics because I wanted to give a voice to the voiceless, and I wanted to, to, to right some wrongs. I'm the, I'm the son of uh, kids having kids. My parents were teenagers when I was born. Mother was 19, uh, mother was 16, father was 19. I had the great fortune of being raised by my grandmother, um, who I would say saved my life, uh, and I grew up on free and reduced lunch, and despite all those odds, became the first in my family to graduate from high school and go to college, and uh, I thought the best way to pay it forward and, and pay back those who helped me was to get involved in, in, in politics and in government. And so I started knocking on doors, uh, working on campaigns, and kind of rose up the ladder a little bit, I guess, you know, in the Democratic Party uh, in Virginia, and ran a state party when I was 26, and uh, helped Terry McAuliffe get elected back in 2013. I was his political advisor, his chief of staff, and deputy campaign manager, and once elected, he asked if I serve as the Secretary of the Commonwealth. And uh, I started working uh, for him in 2014, and 
uh, we started focusing on the restoration of civil and voting rights. In the office of the Secretary of the Commonwealth, um, my responsibilities involve uh, uh, the restoration of civil rights, clemency, uh, extraditions, appointments to boards and commissions, a whole hodgepodge of different events. I was talking to Miles Rappaport earlier, a former Secretary of State, and he told me that he also has such a hodgepodge in, in, uh, in that sort of office. Uh, after that, uh, we did some great things here, and we'll touch on, mm -hmm. I decided to run for mayor of Richmond, my first elected office. So I've been in office for 22 months now, and uh, it feels like 22 years. <laughs> but I just say this, I have more gray hair than I began with. Let's just say that. I feel the same way being here. <laughs> so uh, this is kind of a silly thing, but not a silly thing if you're the mayor of a city, which is 20,000 potholes, and apparently... Uh, 12,000 alleys repaired, right? Uh, that was last year. Up oh, last, uh, last year. year. Oh, we're up. We're up. In 2017, we 26,000 potholes and uh, 1,500 alleys. So yeah. All right. All right. Well, that's see, never that enough, though. Never enough. Never potholes enough. Potholes put a whole lot of gray hairs on a whole lot of heads. So <laughs> so that makes perfect sense. Uh, so talk a little bit about your um, relationship to the issue of felony disenfranchisement more generally. Uh, I know there's a personal story. We heard some of it earlier and. I know others uh, will benefit from hearing that, yeah. but um, I'm also curious how you th how you came to think about um, the constituents who would benefit from it and those who might oppose it. Yeah, um, I kind of I guess you can say stumbled upon stumbled upon the issue because uh, my father was a former felon, was a, was a former offender, and um, I started working in politics uh, out right out, out right as an intern in college and after I graduated from college and I realized my dad could not participate in any of the elections that I was actually working on. And we would have all of these, these, these really great conversations about you know, where he stood and where I stood, but he could never vote. And growing up, I grew up in a household where people didn't vote. Um, raised by my grandmother, she didn't really participate a lot. They really started participating when I started getting involved in politics. And um, I researched how to get my dad's right to vote back and mm -hmm. restore his rights, and came to find out that because he had an offense in, uh, in New York, Virginia recognizes if your offense occurred in another uh, location, another another state, that they go reuse the the laws of that state. So my dad was able to participate roughly around uh, 2005, 2006. Um, working in campaigns, I started as a field organizer, knocked on doors, organized folks to knock on doors. And what I realized when I was knocking on doors in some of the African-American communities that I was working in, um, a lot of people, we skipped a lot of homes. And we used we use the data of those who participate in elections. And we skipped a lot of homes, a lot of doors. And folks would grab me and say, well, you skipped my house. And I would say, well, you're not on the list. You're not on my walk sheet. It's because they're like, oh, okay, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a felon. That's why I can't vote. And that, I, I, I saw that again and again and again. And um, I guess when, when Governor McAuliffe, after he won, he told me that my responsibility was to reform the way we restore rights. And we had previous governors who worked on this issue, uh, the Republican governor, uh, the governor's predecessor, Bob McDonald, mm -hmm. uh, took some real major steps. Uh, but the governor was a very competitive individual. He, he wanted to go. He can't vote these days, can he? Uh, 
I guess he, he was never. Uh, I guess he, I, I, was I guess it was repealed. His conviction yes, was yes, vacated. That's right. That's right. Oh, so wow. he's all right now. Yeah. He can vote now. But uh, to be a special category. <laughs> I was charged to, to reform the process, and that's what we got to work to doing. And uh, at first, it was uh, bit by bit. Um, when we walked into to office, uh, there was a 15-page application for more for, for violent offenders, more serious offenders, what we call it. And there was a shorter application for nonviolent offenders. So what we did is we created a one-page application for everyone, universal. So we reduced uh, the paperwork, the cumbersome paperwork for uh, violent offenders. Also, what we did is we moved drug offenses from the violent category to the nonviolent category. And that really, really took our numbers, made our numbers soar. And that was impactful to a lot of African Americans as well. And all this set within the governor's power. That's right. Okay. You know, the administrative powers of the process, right? Because in Virginia, we see the restoration of civil rights as a part of his clemency powers. So he has the power to, to forgive. Mm -hmm. um, and then we, we, we went another step and we said, you know what? Those who owe court costs and fees and fines, restitution, they were also not allowed to vote because it meant you, could, you did not complete your sentence. And the governor and I had a conversation one day, and he said, well, if I had a lien on my property or if I had uh, outstanding taxes, I would still be able to vote. And that's true. But a person who owed $300 to the court in which they were convicted in could not vote in Virginia. So what we said is we're no longer going to make it a requirement for you to pay your court costs and fees in order to vote. And that took our numbers to a whole other level as well. Mm -hmm. And then finally, in April of 2016, after uh, a, lot, a full year of research, I talked to uh, the former governor and secretary of state of uh, Iowa, uh, Chet Culver, uh, and I talked to the actual author of the 1972 Constitution of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And I ran what it, what it said in the Constitution by them. And they said, the governor does have this power to restore, give a blanket restoration of civil rights. And so in April of 2016, that's exactly what we did. Mm -hmm. The governor restored the rights of every former offender uh, in Virginia. And that was challenged by the Republican majority. And uh, the Supreme Court sided with the Republican argument that the governor, no governor had done it before. And so this was outside the governor's lane. And so the governor said, you know what? I'm going to restore each one, one by one. And he did that, uh, tolling roughly 200,000 uh, re-enfranchised voters, the most in the United States history since, uh, since, the, since the 15th Amendment. So this is a pretty remarkable story. Uh, but of course, it's a story that is sitting inside of a, a context mm -hmm. where something like roughly 34 states still bar people who are uh, who have completed a prison sentence either through parole or probation. And uh, Virginia's power to permanently disenfranchise but for a uh, governor's um, decision to restore those rights puts it in a special category of four states, is that right? Mm -hmm. uh, Tennessee uh, being uh, another of those states. Um, well, you lose your right to vote for Kentucky. perpetuity, right? right. You right, commit a felony, it, right, it's, it takes it's the taken. governor to restore that right. Only one person, the governor. Yeah. And so that law still stands on the books today. Right. It's still in the Constitution. 
we've just been lucky enough to have two progressive governors who said, you know what, we're going to restore everyone's right. And so if that seat changes, we could backtrack like states like Iowa or North Carolina. So let's talk about, uh, again, a, a slightly uh, pan out a little bit and get a national picture. So according to the sentencing project, 6.1 million Americans cannot vote because of a felony conviction. Uh, and that number represents, um, for those who are in fact disenfranchised, the number of one in every 13 African Americans, which is four times the number disenfranchised by felony um, as compared to the general population of one in 56. And in some of the states where the impact is felt the greatest, 21% uh, of Florida in 2016's black population disenfranchised, 26% in Kentucky, 21% in Tennessee. Uh, and you probably know the latest for Virginia, I'm showing here 22%, um, which was probably before mm -hmm. a, a lot of the work that you guys have done. Uh, but this story has not only a significant impact on uh, the very nature of citizenship, uh, and who is entitled to their rights, but also uh, has a distinct racial valence yes. uh, to it with, with regard to the impact. And I wanted you to talk about what the story is um, of how race and racism have functioned in your own efforts and how people have received this information and to whatever degree the conversations that you've had about restoring uh, rights has turned on questions of race and criminality and mm -hmm. worthiness. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess you gotta go look back at the history real quick, mm -hmm. right? Um, what, the, what, is, what was the purpose of these sort of laws in the books? And you gotta go all the way back to you know, 1870, after Reconstruction, 24 African Americans served alongside folks who were former slaveholders in the Virginia General Assembly right after Reconstruction. And they charted out a constitution um, providing rights to all men, black and white. Um, and then, slowly but surely, between the years of 1870 and 1902, laws, uh, those laws were repealed. And I think it culminated with a constitutional convention in 1902 devoted to, for one reason, and that's to discriminate. They even said it. Senators uh, Carter Glass and uh, fellow by the last name of Gordon said, you know what, this is not about fraud, this is about discrimination, but within the law. And uh, the, the one uh, quote from Carter Glass, a uh, state senator at the time, that really stands out to me is like, this will ensure that the darkie will not have any political power in the Commonwealth of Virginia for years to come. Basically disenfranchising all African Americans all losing the franchise. And so with that, we knew exactly what this was for. So in 1970, when they rewrote the Constitution, uh, they took, obviously, over many, many years, because of legal fights, uh, literacy tests, poll taxes, off the books. But the one that remained was felony disenfranchisement. And after many, many attempts from members of the General Assembly, particularly African-American members of the Black Caucus, to remove this um, punitive law mm -hmm. from the books, they were met with no, no, no. It, this bill would die in uh, the Privileges and Elections Committee in the General Assembly on a regular basis, never to be heard. And so uh, each attempt has always been seen as um, 
Number one, Democrats are giving more rights to African Americans, thinking African Americans will vote for Democrats. But number two, uh, uh, what we were met with was, well, how can you give this person who uh, may have a malicious wounding, you know, you cut the, you break the skin, how could you give this person the right to vote back? I was actually, uh, on many occasions, early on in the process of the governor giving mass blanket restoration, was said, well, this person fell through the cracks and uh, committed sexual assault. They're letting these individuals back on the street. Now, we all know these folks have been living in communities for, for years and years, paying taxes. But the Republican side jumped right to criminality and pinned it on African Americans. It felt like really going all over again. Mm -hmm. And uh, but when polled, nonviolent uh, when polled, people said that nonviolent offenders they were fine with that. There was more serious offenders that people worried the most about. So I could get Republicans and Democrats in one place and say we're okay with nonviolent offenders. More serious offenders, uh, uh, violent offenders. I don't know if I can do that. So it's interesting because uh, if I play devil's advocate uh, to the extent that there are. Um, people who, have, you know, good intentions uh, believe somehow that criminals have forfeited their right uh, to their citizenship, or as was the case in the 17th century, a notion of civil death is accompanied with um, uh, prosecution or conviction of a crime. Um, one of the things that's kind of slippery about all of this is the degree to which um, criminality becomes a proxy uh, for your forfeiting your rights, but that assumes then that the people who have felony convictions somehow um, are fully deserving of those felony convictions, or that the administration of justice in the country is free of racial bias or class bias um, or any of those things. And so I'm just maybe unpack just a little bit further the degree to which you had to take on that set of arguments to explicate further why even the notion of criminality should not disqualify someone uh, who has in fact served their time as some judge of their moral character or fitness for citizenship. What we thought was that we knew that in places like Virginia, uh, but also around this country, that the criminal justice system has uh, unfortunately had a, a punitive bent to those who are pe those people of color. And so for many, many years, whether it was the war on drugs or, you know, years and years we were locking African-Americans up, up, throwing away the key. And then when they got back into society, we stripped them of the right to vote and participate in society. And so when they fall back into, uh, into incarceration, we still don't, we, we, we never give anyone, uh, I think, a, what would we say, a life vest, right? Instead, in Virginia, we chose to be punitive at, at every turn. And we had to change the paradigm a little bit. We said, or we continue, we're gonna continue to just lock people up and have them not participate ever? Or we're actually gonna actually uh, give, them, uh, give them the franchise to participate in their, and make their own decisions. Right. And um, I was always surprised, Professor, about how many people just believed that it was not necessary for these individuals to vote. Mm -hmm. You know, they would say they lose the right to vote because of what they did. Although there were a number of people, even folks who were, uh, what we had to think about was what would the victims say, the families of the victims. And many said, oh, well, them voting doesn't bother me. Them sitting on a jury, that may bother me. 
Because not only did we restore your right to vote, we also restored your right to sit on a jury as well. And that really got people worried. But as you know, in the jury process, during this process, uh, you can kind of filter through all that. Right. Um, I was really amazed about parts of the state that were not ready for, for any of that. But what I saw was the, right to, the, your, your, the restoration of your civil rights also gets you the right to own a gun. That's when I got people to the table, mm -hmm. folks who were uh, rural Republicans, conservatives who said, you know what, you're doing a good job on this, uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, but I, I think I might support you because I got some friends in my neighborhood, in my community, who would all like to get their gun rights back. And the only way you can get your guns right back, you get your right to vote back. So it had to be something that for them. Quite ecumenical yeah. of you and, uh, <laughs> and trying to uh, mobilize support. <laughs> I think, um, one of the things that I'm curious about is the degree to which um, people who fundamentally believe that there is a line that, that bars you permanently mm -hmm. from citizenship um, are thinking consciously about the political implications of that. So for example, uh, although somewhat in dispute, the question of whether or not the 2000 election would have turned on 12,000 Florida voters purged um, illegally or uh, without justification. Um, there was research years ago about a number of counties in the United States uh, where the, the simple fact of felon disenfranchisement had reshaped the electoral map of those communities. Uh, we know, for example, uh, that the loss of voting rights for the incarcerated also means that their communities do not receive the same kinds of distribution of federal resources uh, because they are often not counted um, in the places where they reside, but in fact counted uh, in uh, prisons that are often far away and often much more white uh, and particularly rural as compared to where they are from. Which is to say that there's, there are huge positive externalities uh, that have come from felony disenfranchisement for much of the last 150 years. And the degree to which the closer we move to the present, people think those things are less about race and more about morality, uh, strikes me in particular, as a historian, uh, as specious. Uh, but it is very clear uh, that there's a lot to lose mm -hmm. with regard to uh, restoring these felony, um, the, the citizenship rights of people. So to whatever extent you can talk about it, um, how hard has it been to actually make a case on a moral argument rather than on a gun rights argument mm -hmm. on the fact that it's not quote unquote fair that these things um, have produced uh, benefits for people um, at the expense of others? Yeah. What I've used uh, in the past has been the stories, right? And I found a ready, um, a ready and willing ally right away when I started down this process. And it was the faith community. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't, it wasn't just African-American churches, but it was also, I had priests and I had the Jewish community involved. Folks who said, yes, uh, these people should be forgiven. And I had to actually, actually request that they show up at the General Assembly uh, or just show up with the governor to make the moral case that 
we, we do believe in forgiveness. Um, I, but there were, there were some who, um, I will say, um, Professor, that, that just, the folks, I was, I was shocked by the, the hypocrisy of those who consider themselves people of faith. When, when we talked about the forgiveness argument of redemption, that they were they ignored those arguments from our faith leaders. Right. I was I was blown away. Um, and I, that's when I knew it was just solely political. It was ensuring that the bar the door that these individuals could not participate because the potential of me losing the vote or adding a vote to someone else mm -hmm. uh, was too great. Right. Um, but that was the the main argument that we used was forgiveness and redemption. People, these, a lot of these individuals made mistakes 20 or 30. The governor had someone at a State of the Commonwealth address who made a mistake when he was maybe in his late teens. And he received the right to vote, vote back when he was 70 years old. And it was a white gentleman. And he cried right there on the spot because he thought that he was forgotten. That, you know, I will never have as you said, full citizenship again. Yeah. I pay taxes. I do the right thing. I stay out of trouble. I contribute to my community, but I still can't vote. The number of stories I heard, white and black, on those lines, yeah. blew me away. We watched earlier, and you didn't have the AV for this, uh, the Times uh, did a video uh, short doc, op-ed doc, on Florida's uh, pending Amendment 4 referendum on the uh, repeal of the felon disenfranchisement law that would restore uh, the vote to literally 1.4 million people. Of that 6 million, 1.4 million of them who are currently unable to vote because of a felony, dis uh, felony conviction are in the state of Florida. And uh, unfortunately, this is now up for a vote, which means that as of this year's election, uh, those voters could be restored to their citizenship or voting rights. It's a pretty dramatic uh, story. One of the things that you see in the doc uh, and uh, what has been covered much in the press is the discretionary way in which Governor Rick Scott uh, has been convening the restoration hearings uh, only to chastise people uh, for not paying parking tickets. Yeah. Um, or whether or not they had too many children out of wedlock. Uh, and it's a pretty remarkable thing to see uh, the way in which uh, our uh, most basic right of citizenship turns on um, individual standing and judgment of other people uh, beyond anything that sits within the kind of expectations of legal authority. I mean, simply because, as we know, the, the use of criminalization as a means through which to disenfranchise, which is not in dispute um, from where it starts, is just still with us. And, um, and I guess I wanted to put some of that back into another larger frame, which is voter suppression more generally. And uh, your... Uh, in a position to be part of national conversations as an elected official, uh, in terms of mayoral conferences, and maybe just talk a little bit about uh, what you 
think about what's been happening with voter ID legislation, with voter suppression, closing of precincts, uh, removal of um, early voting opportunities. Uh, Georgia's in the news right now for an exact match um, qualification, which has presumptively disqualified 53 people in a very uh, tight race between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. So maybe just let me hear, let us hear how you're thinking about all of these other things yeah. that are happening even outside of Virginia. Yeah, you know, in Virginia, we, we have similar laws on the book as well. The, the one thing that really, you know, the fact that in Virginia, in order to actually vote absentee, you have to fill out a true legal affidavit that says, where, and say where you're going to be on that day. So if you're a student, you're elderly, uh, if you actually are part of the working poor and you want to vote absentee, to go through this cumbersome process of filling out a true affidavit. And underneath it, it says, you know, in fine print, like, you know, if you lie, you can end up, this is, you know, punishable under the law. While in some states, uh, same day registration, and a lot of those, I mean, I used to work in Wisconsin back in 2004, John Kerry's campaign for president. And that was the first time I saw something I was like blown away, and that is same day registration. They can vote and register on the same day. On election day, we were seeing folks on the, you know, on the corner, and we were like, Are you, have you voted yet? Well, I'm not registered. We can, get, we can take care of that right now. Follow us. But then in Wisconsin, I think they even repealed that. And we all know there are just these, these barriers. This should ensure how can one of the greatest democracies in the world, one of the greatest democracies in the world, yet instead of finding ways for more and more people to vote, addition, we find ways to create barriers for people who shouldn't vote, can't vote. We create subtraction. I just don't, I, I, I never will under, understand that. What we did locally, uh, because of, as you said, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, I've worked with a number of mayors, is I, I followed the lead of some mayors in other states and, and said, you know what, on election day, we're going to make all rides on public transport, transportation free. And I thought I was going to get some pushback from the city council on that. 9-0 uh, um, uh, unanimous uh, consent. And so now, this year, starting this election, we'll make sure that any person who chooses to ride public transportation, they get the ride for free on election day. So they get to, get, can go and vote. Um, but it will take the state, actually, taking some real measures. And I think I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed on the 2019 elections between the Democrats and the Republicans. I wanted to share a quote um, that's in Carol Anderson's um, book called White Rage. It's a, a quick read in response to the 2016 election. Uh, she has a newer book called One Man, No Vote, which is uh, a focus on uh, the history and present of voter suppression. Uh, but she says uh, here in response um, to the uh, context in which we are leading to Shelby versus Holder, and the efforts of Chris Kobash um, as Kansas Secretary of State. Uh, but she's talking about uh, the emergence of a new set of laws, and she's quoting Paul Weirich of ALEC, uh, founder of the American Legislative Exchange Council, who essentially is quoted here by Ari Berman in his original porting. I don't want everybody to vote. The GOP's leverage is in the elections, quite candidly goes up as the voting population goes down. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously we don't hear uh, in public very often uh, <laughs> how clear-cut the intention is, uh, but 
it is what it is. And can I say, Professor, that sounds very familiar from the, the history I've read in Virginia in mm -hmm. the crafting of the 1902 Constitution when folks were essentially saying, you know what, these uh, free Africans, they were slaves and had an opportunity for education, but it uh, seems to me they've been retrograding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the same mm -hmm. sort of language in 2018 as it was in 19, at the beginning of 1900. Yeah. I'll add to that, um, I pulled a quote here from uh, Vardaman, who was the governor of Mississippi at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, he says, there is no use to equivocate or lie to the matter. Mississippi's Constitutional Convention of 1890 was held for no other purpose than to eliminate the N-word from politics. Um, Very similar to the one I said earlier. Right, no, I mean, it, it, is, it is really, uh, I mean, it won't be a headline for, for everyone in the room, but sitting with, the line that connects that past to our present um, is really the moral challenge of our moment. Um, because if we want to, to rupture that line and imagine that somehow the set of choices that are in front of us flow from some different set of motivations, uh, then I think we're in denial. Uh, and indeed, the challenge here um, is to be more explicit about that history because it has the potential at least to have people look in a mirror and say, you know, would I be a constituent of Vardaman or would I be in opposition to Vardaman? Because uh, it's much easier to imagine he was a bad guy uh, than any number of, or even Rick Scott today. Of course, he's not uh, on the ballot for, uh, for Florida. But nevertheless, I think those are the difficult choices that, that people face. I think it's a good time to open the floor for questions. Um, there are two mics and uh, they are wired, so you'll have to come to them. They won't come to you. Uh, so don't be shy. While you're thinking of a question, oh, there we go. There we go. It's a uh, fascinating discussion. On, on something a little different, uh, Mayor Mitch Landrew was here a couple weeks ago and gave a rather compelling story of the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue there, which mm -hmm. he credited to Wynton Marsalis, inspiring him to do it. You on Monument Avenue probably have the, uh, I use the word greatest, not as a compliment, but collection of uh, Confederate statues in the country. Um, and you've taken probably a more incremental approach. Would you like to discuss your views on removing Confederate statues in Richmond? Yeah, yes, uh, I do believe that the, uh, Richmond is steeped in history. And uh, I do believe we are the arts, history, cultural capital of the Commonwealth, and some would say in the South. Um, and uh, sometimes old habits seem to die hard uh, in the former capital of the Confederacy. Uh, we do have uh, Monument Avenue, uh, which is a, a beautiful, picturesque uh, uh, avenue, a boulevard of uh, very, very uh, high-valued homes. And so it's, it's the address to have in, in, in the city of Richmond. <laughs> Um, there are six monuments, one to Jeb Stewart and Jeff Davis and uh, uh, Fontaine Maury and you know, uh, Stonewall. Stonewall Jackson, uh, Jefferson Davis, and also Arthur Ashe. Ash. All right? <laughs> I saw what was coming to Richmond. I, when I ran for mayor in 2016, this question came up and I said, uh, I would not shed a tear if I woke up one day and the Jeff Davis statue was gone. Um, and then in, I guess, was it April of 2017, Mitch Landrew 
made a decision to remove the monuments uh, in New Orleans. And that June, I announced the, uh, the, the Monument Avenue Commission would take up the work of reinterpreting the monuments, uh, not calling for their removal, because I knew that was the third rail of politics in Richmond. Even the fact that I was having a discussion about reinterpretation uh, brought many, many people from outside of my city to our city to protest the move. And then August happened and Charlottesville happened. And Charlottesville had gone, undergone a similar debate. And I said, you know what? What's missing in this discussion is uh, removal. Beyond keeping them, reinterpretation, let's add removal to that as well. And for a year, the commission did their work. They came back with some recommendations. One was to remove the Jeff Davis monument and reinterpret the rest. I believe they all should be removed. I just believe that they are, they were, they were meant to intimidate, to show folks in the city of Richmond, particularly African Americans, who was boss. Uh, you look at the time they were erected, 1890 through the early 1900s, and those were the same, that was the same moment in time that you know, we were also beginning to disenfranchise uh, African Americans as well. This is a relic of the lost cause. It is, um, you know, it's, it was the fake news of their time. And I think they've had their time, though. And I think it's time for them to be removed. Um, and the city council just last week, I think, two weeks ago, had a piece of legislation before them just to ask the Commonwealth for the ability to remove. Allow us to make the choice. Because it sits with the state. Because it sits with the, the state. Well, we are a Dillon rule state, and so some of these decisions belong to the state. There's a law in the books that says you should not, you are not allowed to disturb any monument to Civil War veterans. And the city council voted six to three not to have those powers. So, where we are, we're we want to know what the city council makeup is in terms of its. The city council makeup is four African American and five white. It was six to three. Now, can I just add, when I decided I was going to take on Monument Avenue, I was blown away because I had a lot of African-American leaders, elders in the community who grabbed me and cornered me and wanted to have breakfast with me and said, you know, man, what do you think you're doing? And I said, excuse me, ma'am? <laughs> they said, why are you messing with those monuments? Those monuments are not in our neighborhood. If it was in Churchill, then we would have a problem. But those monuments are in a neighborhood that we never go to. Yet I feel like you are, you are, uh, you're poking the bear. Because they had seen the ugly part of Richmond in their life. And that's a place they did not want to go back to. And I had white residents who would say, like, you know, just leave them alone. Focus on the schools. A lot of people do that. What what aboutism, right? You know, focus on the schools. And uh, I realized that um, both were wrong in this case. That we had to move forward and do the right thing. We're not there today, but the conversation's been had, and uh, I think they all know that time is almost up. Let's just say the folks who live in that neighborhood, some of them jumped to to the reinterpretation part because they know they're, they're living on borrowed time. 
Powerful. Hi, uh, thanks for being here. It's wonderful to hear your comments. Uh, in the UK, they've long accepted the rights of ex-convicts to vote, but they've had a blanket ban on current inmates voting. Mm. In an important case, Hertz versus the, U uh, versus the UK, that got shot down in the U Court of, uh, European Court of Justice, Human Rights, saying that it was illegal to ban inmates from voting. How far would you take this? Would you be considering restoring the voting rights of current inmates? Uh, I, I <laughs> That's something I, I mean, I've never thought about. Um, I know Maine and Vermont such a low standard. Currently do. Currently. Understand. Uh, you know, what I'm working on right now is getting making sure that, you know, folks who at least completed their, their time and, and paid their, you know, they get to vote. Um, in Virginia, I do not foresee that happening anytime soon. Um, what I do propose, though, uh, I propose what Florida's doing, that Virginia should do, that we should have a constitutional amendment uh, for folks who've completed their sentence, sentences to vote in Virginia. Thank you. And just a little context for the question, uh, there are two states in the United States. They are Maine and Vermont yeah. that allow incarcerated people to vote. And I'll add a little bit more context to that, um, to the next question. Um, in Massachusetts, we have a different context than Virginia. Mm -hmm. Up until 2000, everyone who was incarcerated, except for folks convicted of voter fraud who rarely see prison time, were able to vote um, and did so. Um, and through a ballot initiative, we took away the right to vote for folks who are incarcerated. Um, and I am part of an organization. Took away? What you said, through ballot initiative, took away? Yep. We're the only state that's taken away rights to vote, I think in the last quarter century or so, um, it, with regard to the incarcerated population, um, or population affected by the criminal punishment system. Um, and so I'm part of an organization founded in the state's um, maximum security prison um, named the Emancipation Initiative, which was founded by folks who, as the laws stand today, will never see um, freedom outside of those walls because they're convicted of first degree murder, which has the sentence of life without parole here in Massachusetts. Um, and they are some of the most politically active people I know in or outside of incarceration. Um, and their um, number one goal is to return the right to vote to folks who are incarcerated. Um, and so this conversation has been very helpful in trying to maneuver the political landscape um, and ultimately get the right to vote back. We'd have to do it through both ballot initiative and um, through a piece of legislation for the federal and municipal elections. Um, and so I want to push you further on the last question um, because these folks, you know, you said the, the largest argument in your state was around forgiveness and redemption. Um, and no one wants to be defined by the worst thing that they've done. Mm -hmm. Um, especially as brain science comes along and we know that folks into their 20s have whatever you want to call it, diminished decision-making capacity or whatnot. Um, and so the lot, a lot of the folks I know inside are, sorry, I'm dragging on, are black um, who were young men when they were incarcerated for the rest of their lives. Um, and they are very well like read on the politics of our time, they have loved ones who are affected by the politics in this state, but they have no say. And 
not only are they suffering by not having a say because the prison conditions are horrible, but their families, as has been touched upon, are suffering from not getting that political power um, of their voices. And so I'd love to hear, you talked about the nonviolent and violent dichotomy. Mm -hmm. These folks would in, be in that dichotomy in the violent section, although I think that's largely up for debate. Um, and I would love just advice, because the next time we can bring it to the ballot is 2020, and there's going to be difficult conversations, but we want to bring it on the ballot. So you want advice on what part? Mm, anything. Yeah, I, I'll <laughs> fill in. I think what she's saying is the degree to which your experience will help her and the organization sharpen their arguments um, for uh, restoring the rights of the incarcerated and including mm -hmm. people who are incarcerated for serious crimes. Um, so if there's some, some rhetorical strategies that you might think yeah. of. They didn't apply in your case. Uh, well, they did apply in your case because it mm -hmm. was blanket immunity. Mm -hmm. uh, but to, to the extent that you had to take on some of those criticisms, how did you respond? Uh, first, where's the governor on this? May I ask that? Really? Interesting. Because I hear he's so well liked. Oh. Okay, I just. That's what people tell me. He's so well liked, you know. Even Democrats love him. Um, <laughs> I would say, first, um, can I just? I'm going to be political with you because before I was actually an elected official, I used to be a political strategist. So um, you got to have a face, right? You got to have a face. You got to have a story and a face of an individual who may be serving out uh, his term or her term. Um, but as you stated recently, uh, that are just engaged, just as engaged in the civics of where they live, of their state, and should be able to participate. You got to be able to have that story, right? Because you have to create, for what I would say, a, a someone who has been wronged, right? And to me, the, the, the inmate, the resident, has been wronged in this case, because just because you are behind bars doesn't mean you don't have this anymore. You don't have a say in what's going on outside those walls. So the person who is inside, uh, who is incarcerated, should be able to walk out after completing their term into a place that they at least have the ability to contribute to. How do we expect folks to become contributing members of society if we cut off their way to contribute, even when they're behind bars. Once again, I think it goes back to that punitive nature. Sure. How long do we, when do we want to punish people, and how long we want to punish them for? In Virginia, it's very obvious that we don't mind punishing for the rest of your life if you were to commit a felony. A felony as simple as stealing an iPhone. Because in Virginia, you have one of the lowest uh, larceny thresholds um, in, in the country. So a $700 phone, $500 phone, that can get you a felony in Richmond. Mm -hmm. So we're going to take another question. And if you wouldn't mind uh, stating your name, uh, I, some of you have done it on your own. My apologies for the late. <laughs> no anonymous here. It's not Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> My parents actually named me that. 
Uh, is Ismail, thank you for coming here. Mm -hmm. um, I thought it was really interesting when you talked about speaking with folks and one of their pushback arguments was, oh, Democrats want to give mm -hmm. people that have felony charges on the record the right to vote. Oh, they're pandering to the black audience. They immediately have that connection with blackness and criminality. And I see this reenfranchise movement as working at that um, by bringing people who have suffered through that close association have somehow ended up in prison. They get the right to vote afterwards when they're out. My question is, um, are there any other things you plan to do in Richmond or that you're working on or that you know about um, with the police department or any other players in the criminal punishment apparatus to help dismantle that? racialized discourse on criminality or to um, also help ameliorate the disruption that comes to communities from that uh, over-policing and association. So some of the things that happen before people end up in prisons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, just one thing, that I'll point to one thing that we we did recently is, uh, just to, I think about the criminal justice system and what we laid in, but we, we, we we give every individual who interacts and engages with the criminal justice system when they're, they're incarcerated, they built up these fees and these fines, and so when they're actually released, they're really never released, right? Because they owe all these court costs and fees. And in Virginia, you have to, uh, when you're in Richmond, when you are in jail, you have to pay for your, it's like a writ. Mm -hmm. Writ. And so what we said in Richmond was like, no, we're not doing that anymore. You're not, you don't have to pay that back. We'll, we'll, fit, the, we'll fit the bill. Uh, because once they enter society, I want them to have every opportunity possible to actually get a job, get necessary benefits, put a roof over their, head, over their family, family's head and put some food on the table. But you're not going to do that if you already start in debt thousands of dollars sometimes is the case. Um, another thing that we've been working on in Richmond as well is uh, my predecessor started what we call an Office of Community Wealth Building. And that is focused on the mitigation of poverty in our city. The city is about 25% uh, 25% of the, of, the, of the city lives under the federal poverty line. And what I've done is make that office a little bit more robust, particularly focused on families who are living under the poverty line, but many families who actually the, the breadwinner uh, is a returning citizen. How do we work as a city to get them um, fruitful employment? Not employment that, you know, it's a, a service job at McDonald's or something like that, but a trade that they actually actually use this as a career. And uh, we've been pretty successful. A model that's been followed by other, uh, uh, by other cities. Does it have a name so people can Google it? To office of Community Wealth Building. Okay. Richmond Office of Community Wealth Building. Great. Can we take the next question? Hi, um, my name is Anna. I'm a first year student over at the Divinity School. Um, and I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, where I was oh. born and raised. So as you know, Mississippi has a huge- I love your mayor. Yes, me yes. Too. he's awesome. He's my, my man. Yeah, he's great. You all should look, look him up. Um, but so two, no, no, four weeks ago, I applied for my absentee ballot. 
And in Mississippi, it is almost impossible to vote absentee. You have to call your city clerk to prove who you are. You get your application mailed to you. You have to then get it notarized just to apply for your absentee ballot. Then it's mailed to you. It can take up to two to three weeks. You have to have your, that ballot, or or the, um, yeah, your vote, you have to have it notarized. So you have to go twice. So if I, as a student, don't even have time to do that, I'm thinking Mm. of the working mothers, like, who don't have time to go get two documents notarized. So um, anyways, I I think that voter suppression is a huge issue in Mississippi, and it's really interesting to hear that faith communities were really the movement behind what happened in Virginia. So I'm wondering, what does coalition building look like um, with faith communities? How did it look like in Virginia, and how can I start that, or how can I support that work in Mississippi? Uh, my, um, I think the African American church has always been behind efforts like this, particularly around civil rights. We all we all know the, the history. Uh, but what I did is look for a more diverse coalition uh, beyond just the African American church. Uh, you know, uh, whether there were imams and uh, rabbis, and um, I, I, I tried to bring a broad coalition together, uh, and then I teamed that up with. Um, we have a, a group called New Virginia Majority and uh, just our social justice groups as well. And they kind of formed this coalition, this alliance that helped push our legislature, push governors to the point that we, we were today. So what I did was convene a table of those leaders from social justice and also from the faith community on a regular basis and use them to advise us on what sort of reforms that we should be pushing forward. So we did that on a quarterly basis uh, when I was Secretary of the Commonwealth. And do you feel like, just to extend the question a, a second longer, uh, do you feel like that was a mechanism that had, been, um, had not been used by previous secretaries or by previous governor's administration? Um, the previous administration, which was a Republican administration, did use it, but I felt it was more of a uh, Show and tell. Photo op tokenism. Got it. Right? You know, I'm going to do this press conference. I've got a number of African American uh, pastors behind me. They're with me on this. We're doing the right thing. And it's, 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 and it also just you talk about faith inside both parties as well. It's used differently. Mm-hmm. Democrats talk about social justice. Republicans talk about, you know, doing the right thing, the morally the right, right thing. And uh, I just, it was, it was a different way that we used it compared to, I think, the Republicans used it. Uh, it's just a, a matter of convenience. Okay. Hi, my name is Doug, <coughs> Douglas Johnson. I teach here at the Kennedy School in, uh, in human rights, and in particular in strategy for human rights work. So I'm very interested in how narratives emerge that that switch values, um, and sometimes it's very slow, and then suddenly it's very quick, as we saw with um, LGBT issues, for example, mm-hmm. uh, where over 30 years, what was completely unthinkable now is a majority opinion that what's it matter uh, if uh, people of the same sex marry? Why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's quite different than the moralism that we saw uh, for so long. So this is an interesting case. I've been fascinated by what's going on in Florida, and you made reference to it. 
what I haven't found is anybody making reference to how they're doing. What's the polling look like? But also, what are they learning? Because you talk about a very specific kind of problem, which is a political decision making about influencing one person, a governor, and then helping him defend that decision to others, whereas they're taking on the issue of how do you change a culture and a set of values? Uh, how do we do that? Um, so I like your thinking on it, but also to throw off kind of reactions to two things you said that I, were, I thought were kind of curious. Uh, one is the notion of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And that's, I'm not a conservative, but that strikes me as, oh, it's not, I don't have a right to forgive. The only person who has a right to forgive is the victim. Um, so is that the right language that will broadly speak to people? Redemption, very Christian, but there's a broader value uh, that we hear conservatives and others do an American value, which is the second chance. We believe in second chance. So framing, which ones actually appeal? Because the big problem is, how do you include more people? Yeah. And second chance is, to me, a value that many Americans would resonate from. The other thing you said I thought was curious uh, about uh, jury duty, oh. the right to sit on a jury. I thought, how many of us here think of sitting on a jury as a right? Uh, <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. You think of it as a duty. And it's a duty that's required of us, but we also see sitting on a jury, anybody's had to do it, as a kind of sacrifice that we do because it's our civic duty. So the weird thing going on in human rights is the very first human rights declaration was the Inter-American Declaration on the Rights and Duties of Man, mm -hmm. and all those other international instruments drop the concept of duties from the dialogue. And I, I, and I wonder about, again, a broadening appeal, but actually talking about uh, what duties do, say, former felons have as citizens, and whether or not combining the, the notion of uh, somehow only speaking about people's rights and especially when it gets caught up in all this moral thing about uh, can they be forgiven or, or not, or should they constantly punish, that, that some emphasis in a conversation about the duties of citizenship and uh, that, that a company, every right has a duty. We got you. Yeah? Yeah. So how, how might that affect? How I see some of that? Yeah, yeah in, in terms of narrative of the broader you. public. So, so, so uh, there might be some disagreement here, and I think that's okay, that's healthy. Um, we talk about second chances. Who deserves a second chance, right? The question that has to be answered. And I feel like in this country, um, if you person may look like you, they may get a second chance. But if you look like me, you don't get second chances. And I feel like our leaders have to have to right that wrong. Right? I mean, the system has been built where 
forgiveness is only owed to, only deserving of those who look a certain way. And the folks who create the rules, were, I, we didn't create these rules. Someone else did for us. And when you speak of duty, I think the duty that the the duty of the, of, the, of the returning citizen, their only duty was to do their time, right, and pay their debt. And if they do all that, should, should we have to create another box that they have to check? Yeah. That's right. That everybody does, right? And... Uh, they don't get the right to actually participate, even though they do, they've done, they're doing all those other. They get instead punished for in, in perpetuity, right? Okay, okay. My, my whole thing is, um, and this is just my belief, is that everyone, no matter who you believe in, what you believe, everyone is owed forgiveness, is deserving of forgiveness. I, that's just my just just a belief that I, I I hold, and I think we should see those sort of values in our governance as well. And uh, that's that's what I believe is my view as an elected leader. I do think this is a healthy tension uh, between the narrative frames and the concepts that uh, underlie whatever normative value. Uh, we think is most effective. Um, I had a visceral reaction to Second Chances because it's so clearly resonant with uh, Bush's prisoner reentry legislation, um, and you know has been part of a, a kind of meta narrative about America, which just simply isn't true. Uh, and so, I'm not sure any of them are the silver bullet. <laughs> and I think, I think what the mayor is partly saying is that situationally, um, his approaches have been effective in that space across a range of constituents. But whether they will apply in another context, either because the person in charge is more cynical, less committed, less faithful, uh, I think is kind of the question of the hour. Um, and you asked what the polling numbers look like in Florida, 71, 72%. We need a 60% threshold. So it's pulling above 60 at the moment. To pass. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. Glad I gave myself an out. <laughs> oh, sorry. Hi, I'm Ellie Kalfas. Um, to the last question, I just want to add that women and people of color have been fighting for the right to sit on juries for centuries. Um, so I'm curious, the, the majority of people in jail are allowed to vote because they're not there for felony convictions. Mm -hmm. And in Massachusetts, I'm organizing some efforts to help people in jail just get access to ballots. I'm wondering if there are any efforts like that in Richmond or if that's something that you yeah. would be interested in doing. Yes, uh, I, I would definitely be interested in that. But there are, we do have, our, the organizations in Richmond and in Virginia have not focused necessarily on that right. um, <laughs> because of, uh, I do believe the way that we go about our absentee balloting, it, it makes it already very difficult to get to mm -hmm. the person who may be serving out a sentence uh, in jail. Mm -hmm. um, so we haven't, we haven't gotten, you know, we even, I think that barrier right there, the way we go about absentee, 
is that that's that's the problem. Yeah. Here in Massachusetts too, there's lots of obstacles to letting people who are entitled to vote actually exercise. And the question I would have is, mm -hmm. when you are, let's say, you have a sentence of, uh, I don't know the answer here, so I'm asking you, uh, five or six months or something of the sort, and it happens to fall in the time that your, uh, you know, the election day occurs. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is your, what is your residence on the, on what's your residence? Right. Can you register to, to vote from uh, the facility? So each state has their own law, but yeah. in Massachusetts, um, you're allowed to consider your residence wherever you consider home if mm -hmm. you're incarcerated. So technically, you're allowed to do it either from the jail or your previous residence. But of course, the power's all on the Secretary of State to make sure town clerks are following the law and respecting people's right to choose where their home is. I will definitely have to check that because I, I would, uh, I don't know whether or not Richmond or Virginia would have such a liberal reading of that. Uh, Hmm. <laughs> just knowing Virginia. Right. I just wanted to, um, two quick things and then we'll take the last two questions. One, in the 1850s, interestingly, Virginia was sort of on the cusp of experiencing the first real critical mass of African Americans in prison, mostly because it had essentially had started to experience uh, gradual manumission, um, participating also in an internal slave trade, uh, meaning that its enslaved population was leaving and what remained were essentially uh, manumitted people uh, in increasing numbers. And one of the great ironies of criminal justice, which again, it's just sort of a footnote, but also an important link to the past, is that it caused a major stir for the corrections uh, officials because now they had the problem of equalizing white men and black men uh, behind bars, which could not stand. Uh, and so in many ways, the beginning of the harshest racialized disparities and punishment came out of the fact that you couldn't put white, black men in prison with white men. So they emptied the prisons of white men to put black men in them, or they sent black men off to convict leases, um, therefore to shore up what essentially was white supremacy within the context of criminalization. It's pretty, pretty remarkable to think about the effort it took to maintain a racial hierarchy. So That's a Virginia thing, huh? That's a Virginia thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah and the, former, it, it, the former president of uh, the University of Richmond, Ed Ayers, yeah. uh, is, is the historian who, who, who did this work many years ago. It, 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 that's the thing about the Virginia's history is so, uh, it, there's some conflicts there, right? Um, <laughs> to say the least. Let's get these last two questions in. So a basic reason that we're in this predicament is that the Constitution doesn't provide any national um, guidelines or requirements for voting. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you think the framers should have included voting in the Constitution. This won't happen, but what if there were an effort for um, an amendment to make voting, uh, all of these various factors that we're talking about, identification, definition of citizenship, um, ability to get the ballot, all those sorts of things. What if there were an effort to make that national within, you know, under the umbrella of the Constitution? I wonder what you would think of that. And standing here, I heard you talk about forgiveness also. Just tangentially, I wonder what you think of the president's right to pardon. 
Um, first, about the, the first part of the question, um, uh, essentially, what, would you say universal suffrage? I didn't, didn't, but yeah, right, I mean, it could be that. But it's not just universal suffrage, it's also the matter of the, the strategies, the technicalities of voting. Should, should there be a uniform system across the country? Should the framers have included that? I, 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 <laughs> I keep getting tripped up, up, up on the framers part of it. I'm more interested in whether or not we should How advocate do for it today, because the framers were not interested in universal suffrage no. by any stretch of the imagination. But that's why it's not universal suffrage. It, they weren't interested in everyone. No, no, no. Voting, they, so of course not. Yeah, but but should it was left up to the states to develop their their own procedures? Should that not have happened? But yes, I mean, really, the question is, what about now? Yeah, yeah and they were deeply suspicious of centralized power. So right. for that reason alone, they wouldn't have. And they ran out of time to overprescribe. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I mean, so the, for fifty states. We should, should there be a essentially consistency through 50 states? Mm -hmm. I, I'd be, I, I, that'd be very, very difficult to pull off. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think there should at least be a baseline. There at least should be a baseline. And there are some states, particularly in the Deep South, that are way below that baseline at the moment. They need to at least meet a, a standard. Uh, Virginia would be one of them, I think. Uh, I think that's what we, that's at the at the minimal. That's what we need is a standard. We don't have that standard currently. Your second question was presidential pardons. Given what you said about everyone having ability to be yeah. given, um, you know, as the individual was responsible for the governor's pardons, and uh, we had three three styles of pardons: a simple pardon, a conditional pardon, and a absolute pardon. Um, we use the pardon power probably more liberally than uh, any other uh, governor. Um, we simple pardons. Do, it's just a it's forgiveness from the governor. Uh, conditional pardons. We put conditions on sentences and you know reduce sentences in some cases. And absolute is you know, we 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 forgive everything. Uh, expungement of your record. And we did not use, we used it a, more than a, a few times, absolute, but mostly the simple and the conditional we used a lot. And uh, I thought what President Obama did towards the end of his term uh, was uh, courageous, but I think that elected leaders, particularly executives, president, governor, they should not wait to the last year of their term. This is something, a power that should be used throughout the entirety of their term. I can't help but think you're thinking about uh, Paul Manafort and company, uh, but I think I think the disproportionate impact. I mean, if I could speak for for uh, Mayor Stoney, I think the disproportionate impact of poor people and people of, of color standing to benefit from the pardon power is, would probably be a greater benefit in the mm -hmm. short to medium term than removing the pardon power because of a few of the current president's cronies might benefit from it. I would love to see a president, an executive, use it in that way, not just you know, Scooter Libby and you know, President Nixon or anything like that. I mean, I just, right, <laughs> it's a long list, <laughs> right? Like you know, a lot of folks who don't look like me who just you know happen to have a 
phone call away, you know? Well, some of them might have names around here. <laughs> Thank you for being here. My name is Erica Eiderhoven, and uh, we share a common experience around organizing on campaigns. And so I wanted to ask you something maybe a little more tactical, especially in like the political sphere. Um, you know, one thing that I've encountered a lot is that due to the kind of terrain of racism in our country, you know, oftentimes these issues are kind of seen as like, you know, political suicide or it's not worth it. And you get a lot of people who are like, you know, behind closed doors say, you know, I support, you know, eliminating mandatory minimums or, you know, mm -hmm. same day voter registration, but I can't come out publicly about it because it's not, you know, politically favorable um, to their constituents who may be like overwhelmingly say white or, <laughs> or rural or older. And so um, am I curious, what I'm wondering is in terms of like tactically trying to persuade those kind of people to do the right thing, or you know, to, if you have examples of having to do that, especially I imagine when you were in the, in the governor's office, like, do you have any stories around having to persuade people like that, you know, against what is sort of like favorable, you know, in the democratic calculus, right, to do the right thing or to do what, you know, are our values around these issues? Well, Professor Mahali, you may have asked this in class about some of the, the tension that, uh, uh, that uh, arose during this discussion. And here's the thing, I, am, I've, I've, I consider myself, uh, I'm, a, I'm a liberal Democrat. Uh, inside the governor's office at the mansion, we had some back and forth between uh, those, uh, let's say I'm the, I'm the Secretary of the Commonwealth, Secretary of State, and the, my colleague was the Secretary of Public Safety. Uh, and we were on opposite sides of this engagement right here because he's like, Oh, if we do this, and we are opening the governor up for, uh, we're exposing the governor. Right. Yeah. It's also a crime. Yeah. Right. Because, right? you know, his job is public safety. My job is, well, I saw my job is, um, my, I'm the forgiveness game, right? And we had it, we had it out. And the governor chose my, uh, my side because uh, at the end of the day, the folks who elected us, mm -hmm. they elected us to, to change, to, 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 to shake things up. Mm -hmm. And what the governor told me at the time was, we didn't knock on those doors, we didn't raise that money just to get in here and twiddle our thumbs and, and do the safe thing all the time, mm -hmm. right? And I think it, it comes down to the people we elect, right? If they come to you and promise, as we all do, if you're not, cam you're not promising, you're not campaigning, right? And they promise you these things, which we did. We promised that we would reform uh, the restoration of civil rights. It's those that they surround themselves with that matter, I think. Because it's not necessarily the governor always making these decisions. It's the people they put in the positions around them that matter. And so when cabinet selections come up, it, I always tell my friends who are activists, advocates, you can't just show up once everything's all settled. You have to be there right at the beginning. So when, 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 when administrations are going through their transition period, you have to keep an eye on the people they surround themselves with. Because you may have a liberal governor, a progressive governor, but if he surrounds himself with a, a bunch of you know, moderates or conservatives, then you may get that product from that administration. So my, whole, uh, my request is that you are into advocacy and you're an activist, that you have to keep an eagle eye on from, from beginning to, to end. 
particularly during the transition period. All right. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you all for being such great audience. And to Mayor LeVar Stoney, thank you so much. And don't forget to register to vote if you haven't done so already. <laughs> I guess you got a few more hours. <laughs>